There was a time recorded in the book of Matthew where Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders of his day. There was a group of Sadducees and a group of Pharisees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus corrected them. And the Pharisees thought they would test him as well. At least a representative from the Pharisees did. And he stood up seeking to test Jesus. And he said, all right, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Now, on your listening guide is a place for you to answer that question. Before we go to any text, knowing what you know from Scripture, what you know the Bible teaches from your days in classes, whatever groups you've been to, here's the question, very simple. What is the greatest commandment that God has for all people? What, what is the greatest commandment? Now, you'll notice on your listening guide there are two blanks. Because when Jesus answered the question, he did it in two parts. As a matter of fact, when Jesus asked the question of this lawyer that we just saw in Luke chapter 10, the lawyer gave the same answer that Jesus had given in Matthew chapter 22. Alright, so what is the greatest commandment? And this, we will, we will read the text in Matthew together. But do you, can you give me a summary of the, of the greatest commandment? What is it? Okay. I, I'll just put it in two words. Love God. Love God totally, love God completely, love, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, for this is the first and great commandment. The three values that we've already been expressing, worship is expressing love and serving God motivated by love. It is dependent upon His truth, and it is dependent upon reliant prayers. We are in communion and fellowship with Him. But the second is likened to it. And it's interesting that Jesus puts those together. The second is likened to it. What is the second? Love others. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus goes, on. matter of fact, let's just read the text so that we don't miss any words. It's in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, and, and we'll read the context that goes along with it. Matthew chapter 22. Um, does it start in verse uh, 34? 34. Well, let's start in verse 35. That's enough context. And one of them, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right? All the law. And the prophets hang upon loving God and loving one another. Now, is God lovable? You can answer. Absolutely. He is holy and perfect and pure and beautiful. His love for us is overwhelming when we consider the things that He has done and continues to do for us. Is God lovable? He is eminently holy, lovable, and worthy of our love. Now, look at the people sitting around you. Are we lovable? Yes. Said with great enthusiasm. Are we to love one another? You know, loving, I love everybody. Loving one another is one of the greatest things that you can say, but it's one of the hardest things to do. You know that? Loving one another is one of the greatest things to say, but it is one of the hardest things to do. Now, I am pleased to be the pastor of this congregation, and um, it is my prayer today that you and I will seek Areas that we are lacking, areas that we have a deficit to this command to love one another, and that we will acknowledge it, repent, 
and move forward in it, grow in it, increasingly walk in love. And I'm not going to excuse anyone here. Everybody has room to grow. But like I said, I'm glad I'm able to say that I'll get to be a part of this congregation. This is demonstrably a loving congregation. Now, don't get proud. Don't get big-headed. But this is demonstrably a loving congregation. And I praise the Lord for that. I just want to tell you, we're not there yet. We can grow in the love that we have for one another. I pray that God will deepen our love for all people and all types of people, and that as we live into this love, the command of Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, will be our testimony. In Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so that it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others, so that what? They may see your good works, your kindness, your generosity, the way that you act in their benef- for their benefit. And when they see that, may ultimately give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Can we love all people? Not just some sort of remote declaration, but can we be people who are known by our love not only for one another, John chapter 13, but by our love for the people around us, the people in our families, the people that we work with, the people in our community, in our neighborhood. We're going to be worshiping in the West End, hopefully by the end of the year. Can we love all the residents of the West End? Can we love the people who live there and who live down the road? Our text this morning, we read it already, is the story of the Good Samaritan. Fascinating. We will look at it again and kind of go verse by verse through it as we do. But there are some people that are hard to love. What is not really kind of thrown out to us at the te- in the text is the big cultural rift between the Samaritans and the Jews. They didn't like each other at all. They detested one another. They were enemies. They were, as a matter of fact, the Jews, when they were traveling from north to south, would go out of their way to avoid going through Samaria, but not Jesus. He went through Samaria when he was traveling south. You find that in Luke, uh, John chapter 4 in that travel, and then Luke chapter 10 as he's beginning his travels to the south. And so we have a, a, a cultural divide. One of the secular dividing lines in this world, which should never be a part of the family of God, is when people don't love each other because of their culture, their language, the color of their skin. I'll go so far as to say their religion, their politics. All right? It doesn't mean we affirm everyone in the mistakes and the sinfulness that they are, but it means that we open our hearts to love one another. We tend to be suspicious and condescending toward people who are different than we are. And while the command to love everyone includes so much more, than people of different race. Now, I will tell you, biblically, there's one race. We all come from Adam, all right? God created us all. If we don't get you Adam, we get you Noah, all right? We, we all come from, from, from one lineage. Now, there are different cultures, but there's one race. I will be using race as a part in, in this sentence, uh, in today's context, particularly secular context, because there's, but there's only one race. But while the command to love everyone includes so much more than just differences in race, as Christians glorifying God and making disciples of all nations, we need to understand how to think about race in a world from a biblical standpoint. It is an issue. It's a cultural issue. It is a reality that we face. And frankly, it's not just ours. It's one that they faced. It's one that has been faced by every culture and every people. In this parable, we hear the story 
of love, real love, genuine love, across racial, religious, and political differences. And the bad part, or the hard part, the tough part to swallow is, who's the hero of the story? He's the one the Jews would have said is the bad guy. Excuse me. And he's the one that's lifted up as the one who loves his neighbor. The one who is a genuine neighbor to the one in need. Do you remember the lawyer's question at the beginning of the story? What did he ask? Do you remember his question? Because, you know, if, if you're like me in Sunday school, it's like, all right, uh, I forgot what he asked, but Jesus told him the story of the Good Samaritan. He asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when somebody asks that question, you would think, if you are a contemporary theologian, you would think, you'd say, well, you have to ask Jesus into your heart. You have to ask Jesus to forgive your sins. You have to... And, and uh, you have to do this or pray this prayer or make this decision. But Jesus didn't. Jesus turned his attention. This was a man who was skilled in the Scriptures. He turned his attention back to the Scriptures, and he said, what is written in the law, and how do you read it? He took him to the law, and the law, and this man knew it, pointed out God's law, God's standard, righteousness, and holiness, what righteousness really looks like, and holiness looks like. And he knew that this man failed in this area he did that in order that the lawyer might become aware of his own sin so that he would recognize his need for forgiveness and salvation the sin in his heart the sin that jesus was pointing out as breaking god's law was the sin of bigotry of prejudice of not loving his neighbor simple racism the original meaning of racism is prejudice or discrimination or antagonism directed against a person or people on the basis of their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group. I want you to get that, all right? It just means I don't like you because you're different than me. I don't trust you because you're different than me. I, I draw a line around me and separate us because you're different than me. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the call to love people that the world tells us you ought to be cautious, you ought to be careful, you ought to be separate from, you ought to even hate. The command to love your neighbor is the command to embrace people the world tells us we should reject. The command to love your neighbor is the command to invite people into your life that the world tells you that you should turn away from your life. And what if Jesus really meant what he said? What if we're supposed to show the love of God genuinely, sacrificially, at great cost because of the love that God has shown to us? We're commanded to love one another, and it's easy at church to say we love everybody. The question is, do we? Do we genuinely? Are we even able to? The first point outlined, by the way, the outline is extremely simple. You can fill in the blanks now if you wish. It's very simple. In Christ, we are able to love all people. We're able to love all people, all kinds of people, all types of people, all individual people. We're able to because we're commanded to even in the command that god gave us to make disciples you remember that matthew 28 where he's getting ready to leave the disciples he's already been crucified he's already been buried he's already been resurrected he had the disciples come to him in galilee he joins them together and he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me go ye therefore and make disciples ta ethna literally of every ethnicity don't put any lines 
are divisions between types of people, kinds of people, races of people, groups of people. Make disciples of all people, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them. It's not just a decision, check off the list and send somebody over there. But maintain a relationship. Teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In creation, God made all people. We are made in the image of God. And that is sufficient reason to love all people. James tells us very clearly that we're not to mistreat one another. Not to denigrate one another because we are all made in the image of God. In the early church, when the gospel was first preached by the apostles, who'd they preach to? Who was the crowd standing in the square of the temple in Acts chapter 2? Have you thought about that lately? Have you thought about the group that was gathered? What a wild group. People from, the Bible says, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. They were gathered there to hear the gospel as the church was being planted. Acts chapter 2 says they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. When the sound of the, of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, they all came together and they were surprised because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language, the disciples preaching. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, all these guys are Galileans. They're all fishermen from the north area up here. How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And you go down the list. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome. What he's saying is, man, we've got Italians here. We, we've got some right in the edge of Spain. We've got some Gauls. We've got some French people here. We've got some Asians here. We've got some Africans here. We've got people from all together represented. And this is who the gospel was preached to. And these are the people that made up the early church as they repented and came to Christ. And they lived lives together. It wasn't just an evangelistic outreach. And then let's go back to the people that we're comfortable with. Acts chapter 2 says they were breaking bread house to house, that they were investing their lives in one another, praying, listening to the teaching of the disciples. As a people, as a church, and I don't know if this is true, I know it is less true than it used to be, but there was a pastor who made very famous the saying that Sunday morning is the most segregated time in the life of the nation. All the black people have church here, all the white people have church here, all the Hispanic people have church here, all the Asian people have church here, and everybody goes to their own cultural group to worship. I believe that is less true. Here's what I want you to understand. I do understand that people worship where they are culturally comfortable, but I also know people are culturally comfortable where they're loved. Where they know someone genuinely cares about them. It's an important distinction that we get because we need to practice. When I came to this church in 2003... We had two worship services. Some of you will remember that. We had a worship service in the fellowship hall at 8.30 in the morning. We had a worship service at 11 o'clock up in the sanctuary. All right, now, neither room was full. I just want to point that out. This was not an overflow. But we had different worship styles. We had different styles of music. And the goal was to appeal to different style preferences that people had. Well, after a year of this, we came together as a church and we said, no, we're not going to accommodate a simple style. We're going to spend an eternity worshiping together. We might as well start practicing now. You guys remember that? It was great days because at that point in time, it was like, all right, we have a very liturgical service. 
And we can do that. And you people that prefer this, you're just going to get mad. Or we can do a very contemporary service, very contemporary service. And you people that prefer liturgy, you guys are going to get mad. We're not going to do either one. We're just going to make everybody mad. Why? What became important, the priority of worship as far as style is concerned, became content, not style. The priority of worship became who God is and exalted Him and lifting up this Word and teaching it and singing it, walking in obedience to it. And just like we had to learn as a congregation how to worship together here, we're going to spend an eternity worshiping together. Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9-10, through 10, John had this vision, and here's what, it said, what he records. He said, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Every, and here's our problem. We think, oh, all the Baptists are going to be there. And all the Methodists are going to be there. And all the AME are going to be there. And all of the Presbyterians are going to be there quietly sitting in the back. I'm kidding. Just a joke. Sorry. That was in Forte. Uh, yeah, and all of this group is going to be here. And all of that group is going to be here. That is not the picture that is pictured here. You know what's pictured here? All of us. Together, mingled, lifting our voices together to worship God. We love God. And because God so loved the world, we love people. We love all kinds of people. What Jesus was doing to this lawyer who was trying to trick him, what Jesus was doing to this lawyer was he was pointing out a deficit, an area of sin a command for godly living that was not evident in his life because one of the purposes of the law is to show us that we do not fulfill the law, we've transgressed God's law, and we need forgiveness. When we love people, we tell them the truth. If you're going to love people well, you tell people the truth. Would you agree with that? In Christ, we can love people well. And because Jesus loved this man, he was wanting him to understand the truth that he needed to recognize, he needed to be saved. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, just love people perfectly. Well, I can't love people perfectly. You're right. And look at this instance when you didn't, and this instance when you didn't, and this issue in your heart, and this thing that you're doing right now, it is a transgression of God's holy law, and the wages of sin is death. And there's one sacrifice for sin that is acceptable to God, and that is the mind Jesus is the the Lord Jesus Christ as he went to the cross and paid the penalty for sin Jesus wasn't giving him a list of things to do so he could be saved Jesus was showing him scripture so he could recognize he really needs to be saved do you understand the distinction in this passage of scripture do you if not go back and read Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3 and Romans we'll just read the book and it lays out clearly that our good works cannot save us but God has done what the law could not do in sending His Son to live perfectly and to become the perfect sacrifice, to die for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now we talk about race, but it's so much more than race. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's economics. When I mentioned this the other day, you guys said, economics, what, is that? what does the church have to do with economics? And I'm, I'm thinking, what? You know, you have affluent people, you have rich people and wealthy people. You have people that drive new cars and that pay 
a lot of money for a house to live in. And then you've got people who are using public transportation. You've got people who are living in government-supplied housing. You've got people right now in Greenville, we have a significant homeless population. People who have no place to live. And we tend to say, we want this group together, we're comfortable here. We want that group together, they're comfortable there. But we want those people to stay away. And we keep them at arm's length. Can I just tell you a story of love across economic lines? And I guess to some extent cultural that I evidenced when I was a kid in the seventh grade. My dad was a pastor at Flag Chapel Drive Baptist Church in, in Jackson, Mississippi, between Jackson and Clinton, if you're familiar with the area. We had a bus ministry, and so every Saturday we'd go out visiting. We also had a visitation ministry where we would go out and share the gospel with people on sometimes Tuesday nights, sometimes Thursday nights. One Sunday morning, we had a guy come to church, and he looked like he just came off of a bender. You guys know what I mean? His jeans were dirty. Uh, his shoes were dirty. I'm, he, he had shoes. They were dirty. His, his shirt was dirty. He had his hair pulled back in a big ponytail. And guys, I was in the seventh grade. It wasn't normal back then. All right? uh, it, it wasn't common for the culture that I was raised in for a guy to have hair long enough to put back in a man bun or, or a ponytail, especially when it comes to church. It, it was a different day. I want you to understand that. But he had a ponytail that was back, and he, he didn't comb it or anything. He just pulled it back. He had stubble. He looked poor, and he looked homeless, and his eyes were red, and he smelled bad. And he came to church, and he sat on the front row. Now, we were surprised because, number one, we weren't accustomed to somebody that looked like that coming to church on Sunday morning. But, number two, nobody sat on the front row. <laughs> That's just wild. And so, you guys, you guys know what whispering sounds like in the congregation? Who's that? Who's that? Who's that? What's going on? Yeah. yeah, who's that? Why? Why is he here? Where'd he come from? You know him? Better keep an eye on him. What's going on? And then we had a... Uh, usher at the back of the church. His name is Mr. Williams. I'll tell you his first name, but I don't know it. His daughter, Denise, was two years older than my brother and I, and we competed regularly for her affections back in the day. But his name was Mr. Williams, and Mr. Williams always wore a tie and a coat to church. Sunday morning, Wednesday night, whatever. Mr. Williams, all this stuff going on, service about to start, Mr. Williams comes down the aisle, and puts his arm over the back of the seat and leans down and talks to the guy. And we're thinking, ooh, what's going on here? The guy scoots over, and Mr. Williams sits down beside him and guides him through the service. When we began to sing, he showed him where the songbook was. When it was time to read the scripture, he had his Bible. He opened it, shared the verses with him. At the close of the service, when Richard came up front, the guy with the ponytail, Mr. Williams came up and stood with him. And the guy's testimony was this. He said, I was out with some friends Thursday night, and some of you guys came by, and you were witnessing to us. And frankly, we were high and not paying much attention. But you left some material with us, some literature. And I knew that there was something different about you guys. And so I got that. And I thought I had lost it, but I found it. And I was reading this track, and, and I have, it's not like I've not heard this before, but all of a sudden I understood it. I understood I was lost, and I needed to be saved. 
And I don't know nothing. But I know I got saved. And I didn't know where to go or what to do. And there's a church, and so I came here. And he just stood there. And Mr. Williams came up and embraced him. Dad came up and embraced him. We introduced him to the church. We entered into a long-term relationship with him. Do you know what it looks like to love one another? To genuinely love one another. To be kind and gracious to one Different people. Different kinds of people. People who look different, sound different, act differently. We don't draw lines. We allow God to work through us for His glory. You know, one of the reasons it's important that we genuinely care, that we genuinely love one another, is because that becomes a means by which we share the gospel. What does it mean to love well? If you go back to this parable, you got the priest. All right? He just walks past on the other side. You got the Levite, the church worker, can't take the time. He's too busy. He walks past on the other side. But what does the Samaritan do? Can I just pull a couple of things out here real quick? He saw him. He saw him. How many people do you walk by and you pay no attention to whatsoever? You just categorize them. Oh, there's that group of people. There's those skateboarders. There's those rich people. There's those people north of the Mason-Dixon line. There's those Yankees. What are they doing down here? Sorry. Whatever. Oh, how about this one? There's those Democrats. Or you could go the other way. There's those Republicans. Lord in mercy. You understand what I'm saying? And we don't see them. We don't see them. Did you know that the condition of every person apart from Christ is beaten and robbed and heading for death? Don't miss this. Every person apart from Christ is used and abused, willfully rebellious, and headed for death. And we can do our religious thing and pass by. We can do our busy thing and pass by. Or we can stop and look. And engage. Personally engage. This guy had to get off of his mode of transportation. Donkey, horse, I don't know. Probably had four legs. Okay? But he got off. That guy probably had a horse on his way south to Jericho, or a donkey or something, he doesn't anymore. It was stolen. His food was stolen. His clothes were taken. He was beaten. He was bleeding. He was bruised. He was left for dead. And this guy had to be seriously inconvenienced. He had to get personally engaged. He saw him. And seeing him, he embraced him. And it cost him something. It cost him time, energy, attention, and resources. He took oil, which was a, a, like a salve that went on his skin. He took wine, which was basically a disinfectant. Alcohol is a disinfectant. He bound him up. He put him on his own mode of transportation, his own donkey. And he took him to an inn where he cared for him all the way through to the next morning. And when the next morning came, he gave him two days wages. Let's just, uh, from the hip, 200 bucks. He gave him $200 and said, listen, you feed this guy. When he needs water, get him water to drink. 
If you need some more medicine or bandage, you take care of it. I'll cover the cost. And if this doesn't cover it, I'll take care of it when I come back by. I want you to know that he saw him. He had compassion upon him. He saw him and he cared and he got personally engaged. We need... One of the biggest things, I think, is it was unexpected. (laughs) The crowd, the Samaritan is the one that stopped. The Samaritan is the one that went out of his way. One of the things that you and I can do is love people who aren't expecting it. Surprise people with the love of God. But he had compassion, so he helps with sincerity. He, He provided immediate aid. We are to get personally involved. And he provided long-term care. It touched his pocketbook. He financially got engaged. And he came back to check on him later. We aren't talking... When we say love one another, guys, we aren't talking about some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling. We're just not. Because not everybody gives me warm, fuzzy feelings. Do you know that there are some people you have to love in spite of? You guys know what I'm talking about? There are some people that you look at or that you have experience with and experience with somebody like them, maybe of the same people group, and it was not a positive experience, and so that identity bleeds into this interaction. And instead of a warm, loving embrace, hair stands up on the back of your neck and you bristle up. It's like, we've got to be careful now. We had the story of the Good Samaritan. Did you know that the Bible has a story of a bad Samaritan? I got this from Rebecca's book. Rebecca McLaughlin has written a book on how do we confront some of these secular creeds that are not true, but that stem from biblical exhortations that we're to love everyone. Do you know who the bad Samaritan is? I'll just tell you, she was so bad that she couldn't draw water when her contemporaries drew water. She had to come in the middle of the day. She was so bad that she came alone. Jesus went to the well of Sychar. It's found in John chapter 4. And there was a woman there drawing water in the middle of the day. And Jesus asked her for water and she was shocked. Wait, I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman and you're a Jew and you're a male and you're talking to me. What's going on? And Jesus cares for her. And so he tells her there's a source of water that never runs dry. It's water that's far more important than this wet stuff you drink. Water that flows up out of you as you come to know God. And they begin a conversation. And through the conversation, Jesus speaks truth to her like Jesus spoke truth to this lawyer. He speaks. He doesn't compromise the truth. You understand that? He said, tell me about your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. I know. You've had five. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. No secrets. No hiding the truth. No glossing it over and saying, well, I'm sure it'll be okay. And God's a God of love. And this stuff really doesn't matter the most. It matters. It matters because God's righteous standards shows us that we need a Savior and that Jesus is the only Savior. He is the only way and the only truth and the only life. And we can pretend to love people by affirming them in their rebellion as they head toward an eternity separated from God or we can love them enough to be kind to them, to be generous with them, to interact with them and to tell them the truth about their sin and about God's provision for their sin in Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? I have religious people all the time, often. All the time, I don't want to exaggerate too bad. I, a little bit maybe. I have religious people often tell me, well, you know, we're supposed to be known by our love and so it doesn't matter what their sexual morality is like. We're supposed to, be, we're supposed to embrace them just like they are. 
Jesus always embraced people like they were. He never left them that way. He confronted them with truth. He's the one who went to them who were struggling and said, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. You'll find rest for your souls. But you have to come to me. You have to unyoke from the life that you've been living. You have to yoke yourself to me. It's a, trans, it's a transition. It's, it's being brought from death to life, from darkness to light. And kindness is a means, love, practical love, not warm fuzzies, but practical expressions of kindness and generosity where we take down barriers, where we allow the, us the opportunity to get offended and to get hurt and to be made uncomfortable becomes a means by which God transforms us and by which God presents His truth to people. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And we get to speak truth into their life. We're talking about kindness, the genuine kindness toward others that shows the love of Jesus. The genuine kindness that gains a hearing for the gospel. A principle that is found throughout Scripture. I told Sharon earlier, we're probably going to spend a lot of time in Matthew chapter 5 to have it ready for the screen. Look it up. Would y'all look it up? Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 15. Matter of fact, we'll skip along on the screen as, as we can. But you, got, you know what's happening in Matthew chapter 5? It's called a sermon, loud, sermon on the mount, and it's where it's the longest recorded sermon that we have that, that Jesus has preached, and he he rocks their world, and he rocks yours, and he rocks mine. He begins with the beatitudes, and in the verses that we read just a little while ago, you are the salt of the earth. This is verse thirteen. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither people light a lamp and put it under a, plastic, a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. How? What does that mean? So that they may, what? See your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven now christ goes on and he says he didn't come to replace the law he came to fulfill the law he gives some specific things but look down in verse 43 we'll go all the way to the end there's some other things in there that we'll come back to i love well anyway love your enemies he tells the jews to love the romans the romans had conquered the jews the roman soldiers could be very abusive to the Jewish people. And he told them, love the Romans. He told the Jews to love the Samaritans. The Samaritans to love the Jews. Jesus radically changed all of the racial and cultural paradigms of his day. And you say, well, it's easy to love some people. It's not easy to love others. Verse 43, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for the ones who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love just the ones who love you, what reward is that? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's God's standard of righteousness for us to love one another. 
for us to love others. And apart from Christ, I want to tell you, you can't do it. But can I tell you something? In Christ, you can. In Christ, you can. In Christ, He will change your thinking, your beliefs, and your behavior. And we will practically demonstrate our love. Guys, we're moving to the West End. To every resident on the West End. To the people who live on Arlington Avenue. To the people who live on Blackwood Drive. To the people who live on Ansel Street and Green Street. To the people up and down 81 Anderson Street. To the people down 123. To the people down 124. To the people who don't have a home and are walking the streets and staying at the shelters. And to the people who live in the mansions. Do you understand what I'm saying? And if you have a preference for one over the other, go read James. He'll straighten you out quick. We are to love all people in practical ways. And can I tell you why? Because the glory of God on display through this church is at stake. It matters. Isn't God worth it? Isn't God worth it? Well, yeah. He's worth it. He's worth it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, your love is perfect. It makes no mistakes. It's complete. It's full. It's because of your love for us that we can even know you and love you. It's your love that sent Jesus to the cross. It's your love that preserved Scripture and recorded it for us. It's your love that rescued us and redeemed us, gave us life and forgiveness. But Father... We love so imperfectly and we love so completely. We like people we like, but we don't love the people we don't. And I pray that you will continue in our congregation to open our minds and our hearts and our lives so that we see the people around us. We see them not just as part of some sort of ethnic group or people group or economic group or language group or even classified by what street they live on, but we see them as people created in the image of God, yet transgressors of the law who are beaten and bruised and headed for death unless you intervene. Father, help us to be far more characteristic of this Samaritan than of the priest or the Levite in this story. As a matter of fact, clearly help us to be characteristic of Christ who is our life who again and again and again reached out to people that others rejected with love and grace, with an invitation, with warmth, with kindness, and yet unfailingly with truth, unfailingly with truth. He did not compromise his message. He did not compromise the word of God that he was and the word of God that he spoke. He spoke truth because he loved and because he was able to love perfectly. And that's what we want. That's what we want in our lives. To the extent that we don't convict us and bring us to repentance. 
to the extent that we do affirm us and encourage us and grow us. Because we want all people to see our good works and to glorify our Father who is in heaven. It is in the name of your Son I pray. Amen. Let's stand together, please.